Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to this episode of Tatter. Tatter is largely recorded and edited in the digital media studios at Bates College, access to which is something I am very grateful for. But I do want to say that the views expressed in each episode of Tatter are in no way official views of Bates College. With all that said, here's Tatter. Ballotpedia defines pivot counties as counties that supported Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012, but then supported Donald Trump in 2016. Of the 206 pivot counties they identified, eight were in Maine. Those eight counties were eight of the 11 counties in, or in one case overlapping with, the 2nd Congressional District of Maine, which itself pivoted from twice supporting Obama to supporting Trump. Because of the way Maine allocates its electoral votes, Trump received one electoral vote from the 2nd District. The 2nd District is the largest U.S. congressional district east of the Mississippi River. It comprises 80% of the state's land area, the northern 80%, and it is the second most rural district in the entire country. It's currently represented in the U.S. House by Republican Bruce Poliquin, who was elected in 2014 and re-elected in 2016 to a seat previously held by Democrats since 1995. Poliquin is up for re-election this year. This episode is about that upcoming election and the district. It's titled, I-95 Northernmost. Head north on I-95. If you live anywhere south of Boston, head north on I-95 for a long fucking time. Take exit 75 and follow signs for Auburn, Maine. Entering Auburn means you have left the 1st Congressional District of Maine behind and are now entering the 2nd District. If you were heading to the 1st District, then your destination would be on the political left. But in the 2nd District, things get more complicated. The second district is this much more rural part of the state. That's Amy Freed, who is a professor of political science at the University of Maine and a regular contributor to the Bangor Daily News. It's, uh, you know, Maine is the widest state in the country. It's the oldest state in the country. And the second district is the older and whiter of the two. So it's, you know, it's really much more homogeneous uh, than many, many congressional districts altogether. And with the rural tendency, uh, there's a whole hunting tradition as well. Um, and and there has been some anti-immigrant politics, particularly in the Lewiston area with the movement of Somalis uh, who were refugees who di- didn't actually come directly to Lewiston, but came from other parts of the country to Lewiston. And at certain points since that's occurred in the last 20 odd years, there's been some counter reaction to that. One of the things that it's very hard to do in the 2nd District is convince people that the world has changed. That's political writer Al Diamond, 
who writes for the Daily Bulldog at dailybulldog.com and the Forecaster newspapers. You've got a lot of people in the 2nd District whose attitude is, those mills are coming back, and we just got to, you know, we got to get a better trade deal or something, and the mills will come back. That isn't the case. It's not real. You've got to look at other jobs, at other kinds of jobs. And when you're going through a transition period from one kind of job to another, I mean, it's hard to find uh, a new industry, new ways of approaching that economic development that are going to produce wages that are going to be equivalent to what they were getting in the mills. And the 2nd District is very stubborn about that. And I think, you know, in large parts of the 2nd District, there's still a lot of nimbyism about mm-hmm. new industries, and that's got to change. And trust me, I'm, I'm as nimby as anybody. I don't want windmills in my backyard. And, you know, and I'll argue that there aren't any jobs to be had from windmills once they're built. But I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not in favor of, uh, of dramatic change. And I think that that's that attitude, which I have, and which I think lots of voters in the second district have, makes it very difficult to promote a real economic agenda. Um, it's easier to do what Pollockman is doing, just saying, I'm focused on jobs. What jobs? I don't know. Jobs, you know, any jobs. The second district supported Bill Clinton twice, Al Gore John Kerry, Barack Obama twice, and then shifted in 2016 to Donald Trump. Why? I think that uh, Hillary Clinton wasn't very well liked overall. Um, And if you, you know, you could just sort of look at also the caucus, the Democratic caucus results where Sanders did very, very well. And it's a, it's a kind of district that has tended to like, upstart kinds of candidates. Uh, Ross Perot way back almost won the district uh, in in the 1992 race, uh, you know, which would have been the only congressional district in the country (laughs) that Ross Perot would have won. And he came in second. But I also think a lot of it is this, you know, this national trend where you have white working class areas with, kind of loss of manufacturing jobs. And those were voters that, you know, tended to gravitate, gravitate towards, towards Trump. Um, And some of that involves at least some xenophobia, anti-immigrant kinds of attitudes. At least that's what the national data are showing. We don't, we don't really have congressional district level data. So, in some ways, we have to just sort of project that, given that it has similar kind of population, that it could be that that's that's also what's going on um, in the district. And you know, we could also see you know statewide how how people have tended to vote. But um, yeah, I mean, Trump did well in Maine with voters who thought that immigration was a really important issue facing the country. I don't think there's been any shift in the voters. I think the voters are voting the way they always have, which is they listen to the message and they react to it. And I think that Obama had a pretty clear message. that people here are worried about jobs. They're worried about their economic security. They're not 
concerned about all the vague social issues that the Democrats are pushing. So I think the Democrats' message is is not resonating with the voters in rural Maine. In most of the district, no. I, I think people are saying, you know, I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about whether I'm going to be able to pay my bills. Um, Bruce Poliquin comes across to me as, as a total phony, but his message is jobs, fix the economy, jobs, fix the economy, jobs. That's what people in the 2nd District want to hear. The Democrats are talking about almost anything else. And when they get around to talking about jobs, it's, it's all vague. They, they never get down to anything specific. There's no reason to think that that's really a priority for them. I think that they're being really stupid. I think they were really stupid in the last two elections. And that's why Bruce Poliquin is a congressman today. On June 12th, the Maine Democratic Party will hold its primary to determine who is going to be the nominee to face off against Poliquin in the general election. At least based on fundraising, the two leading candidates are State Representative Jared Golden and Environmental Advocate Lucas St. Clair. I asked both Freed and Diamond for their thoughts on who was more likely to be the nominee. And I should add, for the sake of full disclosure, that Jared Golden is a graduate of Bates College, where I teach, although I never taught him while he was here, and to the best of my recollection, I did not meet him while he was a student. I think that probably Jared Golden is a is a bit ahead uh, because he, you know, he really has more experience in the state, and he also has a base in Lewiston, which is a, a really important part of the second congressional district. It's it can be a bit of a swing area. And so if you're doing well in Lewiston, you, you should expect to, um, you know, have a really good basis for, for a race overall. I mean, Jerry Golden also has this, has more, you know, kind of a really good story of his own because uh, he, as a young man, when he was first in college, the uh, September 11 terrorist attacks occurred and then he ended up dropping out of school and going to the Marines. So he was in the, he was in the military for a while, then he came back, ultimately finished his, his degree, um, and then did a number of different things. And then really, I think his first main political kind of thing he did was work as a staffer for, uh, for, for Senator Collins. Uh, so he has a bit of bipartisan experience as well. Um, and, you know, and then he ran for the legislature and, and has become a leader in the legislature. So even though he's only in his early to mid 30s, uh, he, he has, you know, quite a lot of experience. and He has really kind of a range of experience. Um, if you want me to pick a front runner right now, I think it's Jared Golden. He's got the party establishment pretty well behind him. Um, he's got an impressive resume. He's paid his dues. He's going to get a lot of first-place votes in the first round. The reason Diamond referred to rounds of voting is because, for the first time this June, Maine will employ ranked-choice voting in its party primaries. After him, Lucas St. Clair, he's got money, he's got some name recognition, uh, thanks to 
um, his work on the Katahdin National Monument. Um, he's got some baggage, given that his uh, his mother was kind of obnoxious in the way she went about assembling that land mass. Um, but he's he's got to be counted in there. I do think that St. Clair is attractive to some voters, however, uh, in that he's really stressed environmental issues. So to the extent that you have voters who really care about recreation and care about environmental issues, he could be a good candidate. I mean, he's really most well known for having worked to establish a national monument up in northern Maine. But that itself was controversial um, in the in the region. Um, and he he did this really on behalf, in a way, of his mother, who was the co-owner of the company Birch Bees. Uh, and his mother, Roxanne Quimby, had, want, had gone out and purchased uh, a lot of land in the area and was interested in donating it to the federal government as a national park or a national monument. The people in the region weren't that crazy about the idea uh, however, because they felt like they wouldn't have the same access to that land as they had in the past, because Maine has this whole, you know, kind of tradition of even though something is private land, it's available for people for different kinds of recreational uses. So they were, you know, sort of unhappy about first her buying it. At one point, she put up a a barrier so that people couldn't get into some of the land. And, um, you know, then they were, a lot of the people in the area were unhappy about the potential for it not being available for certain kinds of uses, you know, whether, whether you could have hunting there, snowmobiling, those sorts of things. As Amy Freed noted earlier, Lewiston has experienced significant demographic change since the turn of the 21st century. As reported in the Lewiston Sun Journal, in 2000, Lewiston's black population numbered only about a couple hundred. As recently as January of this year, the Sun Journal reported that that population is now between six and 7,000 out of a total of approximately 36,000 Lewiston residents, and the majority of those black families are Somali. Great strides have been made in welcoming and integrating these new Mainers, but at the same time, there have been tensions and signs of resentment. With the primaries and the general election approaching, one thing that I personally would like to see is for the candidates to clearly signal that they value these new Mainers as much as they value white voters in the district, perhaps, for example, by featuring them in television advertisements. At the same time, I asked, with the Democratic primary coming up, whether Diamond or Freed saw any political risk to the Democratic candidates in doing so. Might they, for instance, alienate white voters? It's not risky in the Democratic primary at all. Um, but it could be risky in the general election. Yeah. Um, the second district has some deep-seated racism that's been there for a long, long time. And it's, it's the worst kind to eradicate because it's, it's racism that isn't really based on anything. You know, they, they, 
didn't have any uh, minorities or very many minorities to hate. So it's it's all sort of in their heads that this is the way it's supposed to be, Lily White. And it it will be very difficult uh, to eradicate that, and you're not going to do it in one election. Well, you know, if if someone is running statewide, I think that is also a little bit of a risk, but not as much, given that, you know, you're bringing in more diverse communities. Um, But, you know, then you also have, even though there might be some risk with it, either statewide or or in the district, if it's helpful in any way to, to bring out younger voters and to make sure you get good turnout in, in some of the, quote, urban areas in the second district, <laughs> then, then it, it, you know, that also can, might be helpful as long as it's not in any way, you know, like turning off, I guess, the, some of the voters who have these, you know, xenophobic, maybe even racist kinds of attitudes. Um, you know, I mean, you look at a candidate like, Jared Golden, who I think he gets those cultural advantages for being a Marine or, mm-hmm. you know, having been a Marine. But, you know, I've also heard him talk about his constituents in Lewiston, which, you know, he's got a fair number of African immigrant yep. constituents and how important they are in the revitalization of Lewiston. Yep. So he hasn't really, you know, kept away from that. At least in in in, in discussion, um, I don't know if that's you know really been seen in in as many venues as it as it might have been. But I I have seen him take questions about that specifically, yep. where he's you know will say directly that that he he thinks that those are really important populations for the state and also that the state does need to be more open to immigrants in general, given the aging of the population. But I think the racial angle will be more important in the general election. Um, And it'll be interesting to see whether uh, the Republicans play to that, play to those fears. I don't think they will unless they feel that Pollockman is in danger of losing. And then I think it could get ugly. But uh, it'll be, uh, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time Republicans have done that by any means. So it is none of the question. As reported in the Sun Journal, a secret recording was obtained by the Maine People's Alliance documenting Representative Pollockman behind closed doors saying that he actively avoids taking questions from the press in order to deny potential opponents ammunition that could be used to defeat him. Does that strategy help Poliquin or hurt him? I think it's net beneficial because he's really bad at dealing with hard questions. Um, when he, you know, he ran for office a number of times before he ran for Congress, and he was terrible in debates. Um, he gave you know, vague answers. He gave uh, answers that were just off subject. He, he really could not handle um, any tough questions in debates. And since he's hired Brent Littlefield, who was Paul LePage's uh, political guru, um, he's been much more adept at avoiding that. 
it's, it's simply not one of his strengths. He, he doesn't have any good answers. What he's planning to do in Congress is what he thinks will improve the economy, I guess he thinks, which is you know to take the regulations off the banks and the financial institutions and let them do whatever they want. Um, and maybe that works, but probably not. Um, but he's not going to answer questions about it, and he's not going to put it in those terms. And, you know, he doesn't want to be tied closely to Trump, so it's best not to get into anything about that for him. Um, and, you know, he just, he he does, you know, get honest once in a while when he thinks he's not being recorded, but um, <laughs> other than that, he, he really avoids that stuff. Um, you know, he's a weasel, and he behaves like one. In the end, who's got the better chance to beat Poliquin in the general election? Golden or St. Clair? I think Golden has the best chance, given that he can't be dismissed in the way you can dismiss the usual Democratic liberal candidate in the 2nd District. I mean, he's got you know a military background. Um, he uh, you know comes across very well. He has deep roots in the district, which is something that Poliquin can't really claim, since he doesn't even live here. And why that doesn't bother more people is beyond me. But let's face it, he lives in Georgetown, he has a huge estate in Georgetown, and he has a phony address in the 2nd District. That's legal, but it ain't pretty. Um, so I, I would go with Golden as having the best shot at beating him. Um, but if he wanted me to place money on this race, um, I'm going to bet on Poliquin. And why is that? Well, he's an incumbent. The last time an incumbent lost in the second district, dinosaurs walked the earth. <laughs> um, the second district just doesn't throw people out. And he's got a solid base of support uh, among the kind of people who voted for Paul LePage and voted for Donald Trump. Well, there's no doubt he is a strong incumbent advantage, um, and there is a tendency to, you know, Reelect people, but that, although that really happens all over the right. all over the country, House members get reelected at very large numbers, and and Poliquin is also very very good at fundraising. He's raised a lot of money. Also, the there's a pack from the House Republican Caucus that's setting up in the second district to try to keep him in that seat. So he has you know some pretty significant advantages, I think. How much of an and, advantage does know, the money does the money make, given that there's likely going to be a great deal of money from both parties and political action committees on both sides that come in from out of state? I think it makes some difference, you know. Mm -hmm. But then we've also seen, you know, plenty of races around the country where it it doesn't always make a difference. It's not always the the the, the ultimate, you know, deciding factor. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I can, and in Maine, I can think back to when, when the page first ran for office in, in 2010 in his primary, he really didn't spend that much money. He had, mm -hmm. but he had a real grassroots core that, that helped him. So I think that's part of the question. Are we going to see in the second district what's happening around the rest of the country where there's really so much excitement on the Democratic side that those voters tend to come out and vote, and maybe Republicans don't vote quite as much. Mm -hmm. um, that that would be helpful, you know, where we're seeing these big swings 
in the special elections. Um, you know, so, I mean, I think, I think a Democrat has a chance to win. I would, I would, you know, if I had to bet today, I'd still say it's more likely that, that Poliquin will, you know, win re-election. But this is a, this is a good year for any Democratic challengers. So, um, you know, I, I wouldn't count out someone who's, who's running against Poliquin at this point. So this would normally be the point at which I would say, that's it for Tatter. Uh, but actually, I had a chance for a bonus interview with Lucas St. Clair. And that's going to be the basis of the next episode of Tatter. But before I end this one, here's just a taste. Have you held elective office before? I have not, no. So why start at this level rather than, say, getting experience at lower levels of government first, especially given that your uh, one of your opponents, and um, I think most uh, pundits agree, your leading opponent, uh, Jared Golden, uh, uh, is uh, more experienced at, at lower levels of government, including the state legislature. So why start at this level? It's the level that I'm most familiar with and the, the level that I understand the most. I've spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill over the last many years working to draft and uh, working to introduce legislation to create the Katahdin Woods Waters National Monument. I've worked uh, um, for boards uh, or, and I've served on boards that have spent a lot of time focusing on uh, public lands issues and rural economic issues uh, in, in Washington, D.C. I'm very comfortable with how committee work is done, uh, where, um, you know, where uh, certain funding sources exist. I've worked with the White House, with CEQ. That's the Council on Environmental Quality. With various White, White House uh, departments including the Department of Commerce and Department of Interior. Uh, and so that is where my understanding is best in government. And uh, so I, I thought that would be most the, the place that I would be most suited to, to work. Suppose that I were a communication strategist for Poliquin and uh, the Democratic nominee were Lucas St. Clair. I can imagine that one ad I might run would go a little something like this. Yes, he listened. Yes, he stood at the end of grocery lines. He set up a card table at the dump. He listened. But when push came to shove, he proceeded in an anti-democratic fashion, ignoring everyday skeptics in the second district, skeptics of the Katahdin Woods and Waters Monument, ignoring the main legislature, which voted to oppose the National Monument. And yes, he said at the end of, and I listened to your main live uh, presentation, the power of the people prevailed, but not the people of the second district, or at least not those who were skeptical uh, of the monument. What would your reaction be to such uh, an ad? Well, you know, my personal reaction would be um, the fact that, you know, he tried to do this once before. All right, that's it for Tatter. I want to thank Al Diamond and Amy Freed, as well as Lucas St. Clair, for taking the time to chat with me. 
I also want to point out that I reached out to the campaign of Jared Golden and the office of Representative Bruce Poliquin, inviting them for interviews, but at least as of when I completed editing this episode, I had not received a reply. Hope to get either or both of them into a future episode. Speaking of future episodes, the next episode of Tatter will feature the entirety of my interview with Lucas St. Clair. To stay abreast of future happenings on Tatter, go to www.facebook.com slash tatter.rags. And follow on Twitter at tatter underscore rags. I want to give a special shout out and thanks to Colin Kelly, who's always helpful at Bates. And with all of that said, thanks for listening and be well.